I was uh, I was at the door of an apartment. This was in the United States. Knocked on the door, and the young lady came to the door. I was I was I had a job selling door to door. And the young lady came to the door and she told me in the course of the conversation that her name was Mary Ellen. But Mary Ellen was just a little bit different. I don't mean weird. I don't mean crazy or way out. She wasn't frightening or scary, but she was different. I looked at her and I noticed that her makeup, her makeup was a little, it was different. Again, not crazy, not outlandish. Just a little different. Her hair is just a little different. The jewelry she was wearing, the jewelry she was wearing was just a little, how would you put it? Different. That's a good word. Different. And I wondered what it was about Mary Ellen that made her different. So we were talking and then, and then the conversation switched to spiritual matters. And she said, John, let me tell you something. I used to go to church, but now I don't. But I do sort of. I don't know what, I didn't know what that meant. So we talked a little longer. And then she said, yeah, I used to go to church. Now I don't, but I do sort of. And so I said to my, I, I didn't say to myself, I said to Mary Ellen, Mary Ellen, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, let me explain. She said, I used to go to a hell fire and brimstone spitting and then she named the denomination a hellfire and brimstone spitting church. And the pastor would talk week after week about a God who would take sinners and burn them without mercy forever and ever and ever in a lake of fire. She said God would burn even babies and Old ladies and everybody in between. I, I didn't like that. It worried me. It bothered me. But week after week, this is what we would hear about. And she said, eventually I came to the place that I decided that if that's what God was like, I'd be better off without him. So now I go to, I don't go, I do sort of. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, John, these days I'm a witch. The hair, the makeup, the jewelry. I'll tell you what, the, this is the truth. The first thing I did, I looked around. I was looking for a broomstick. No, I, I was. I didn't see a broomstick. Just a little red car parked out in front of the apartment building. You're a witch? She said, yes. We go to a, a, a gathering. You could call it church. And I said, spells, incantations, yes, curses. Oh. She didn't want to go there. It struck me as really interesting and actually tragic that a woman would be chased out of the arms of Jesus and run into the arms of the devil by what she learned week after week at a Christian church. Lots of people have thought about this idea that God burns people forever and ever and ever and have said something like, would God really do that? A rather well-known preacher, pastor of a, a rather big church, wrote a book on this subject, prompted by a statement made by another prominent Christian. And he came to the conclusion, he said, you know, the Bible didn't say enough about that to satisfy me, he said. But, well, if God wants to do that, burn people forever, then if that's what God wants to do, who am I to argue? Well, tonight we want to look at this and find out if this is indeed what God wants to do. 
It's a really important question because what you believe about this impacts very directly what you believe about the character of God. And what you believe about the character of God will impact how you relate to God, which will impact where you spend eternity. Let's get something straight from the beginning. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 that God is, what do you think? Love. 1 John 4 verse 8. It's such an important thing that eight verses later, the Bible writer wrote exactly the same thing. God is love. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what's in the heart of God. Mercy and goodness. A desire to give the gift of salvation. That's what God wants to do. So what is hell and where will hell be and when will hell take place? And Uh, Well, wait a minute. Is there even a hell? Will there even be a hell? Now, Jesus spoke directly to this, and he said in Matthew 10 and verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in where? Hell. Jesus made it clear that he thought, he believed that there was a hell. But let's find out more about it. Rather than just that it is, let's find out what it is and where it is and how it is and even why it is. That might be the most important question of all. And in order to do so, we're going to start at the end rather than at the beginning. In Revelation chapter 20, you read about a period of peace, a thousand years of peace. It is widely believed it will be a time of prosperity and plenty when the saints will reign with Christ. And so if you have your Bible, you're going to open it up because I'm going to read from the Bible and not the screen for a few moments. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And the word of God says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for, it says in the Bible, and bound him for a thousand years. So we've got a 1,000 year period mentioned in the book of Revelation. The devil is bound during this time. Verse 3 says that he is cast into the bottomless pit and he is shut up, a seal is set upon him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed for a little season. So, We've got a beginning and an ending point. The binding of Satan and the loosing or the letting go of Satan. 1,000 years separates those two points. The Bible goes on to say this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. I saw thrones and they that, and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, for a millennium, a thousand years, the Bible says. So I want you to see something. The Bible tells us where the righteous are. They are with Christ. For a thousand years, they were dead, but now they are alive. So it is patently evident that a resurrection had to have taken place. There was a resurrection. John 5 verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So let's see it this way. There's a thousand years. There is a resurrection of life. 
We know that's when Jesus comes back. And there is a second resurrection. And at that time, the holy city is going to descend. The first resurrection at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Where are the saved? They are with Christ. Where's Christ? John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will, I will, I will come again and receive you where? To myself so that where I am there you may be also. Where was Jesus going? He said, I'm going to my father's house. In my father's house are many mansions. Jesus left this earth and went to heaven. The saved during the millennium are with Jesus very clearly. They are with Jesus in heaven. When Jesus comes back, we go up, the millennium begins, and the saved are with Jesus for a thousand years. The Bible is clear. Now, what about the lost? Where are the unsaved during Revelation's 1,000 years, the millennium? You know what Jesus said? As it was in the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What happened in Noah's day? Uh, in Noah's day, some people got on the ark and they were what? That's right, they were dry. And then a lot of people, the majority of people, did not get on the ark and therefore they were what? They were wet. They were lost. So when Jesus comes back, the saved... Go to heaven. What happens to the people who are not saved? Revelation chapter 6 gives you a graphic depiction of the second coming of Jesus. On this wise, it says, Then the sky, or the heavens departed as a scroll. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the rich men and the great men, oh sorry, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand when Jesus comes back? His glory is so magnificent that the lost cannot bear it. They don't want to be in the presence of Christ. They're destroyed when Jesus comes back, as it was in the days of Noah. There were saved people and lost people in Noah's day, and it's going to happen again when Jesus returns. The glory of Jesus will be too much for the wicked, and they say, hide us. They call to the rocks and the mountains, hide us. The righteous go to heaven. The unsaved destroyed when Jesus returns. And so what's the earth going to be like? There's no one living on it because the saved people have gone up and the lost people have, well, gone down. They, they're, they're dead on the earth. What's the earth going to be like? You know something I want to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 4. It says, I beheld the earth and it was without form and void and the heavens and they had no light. Jeremiah goes on to say, I was looking at the earth and behold, there was no man. He's talking about a devastated, desolated, destroyed earth with no human being living on it. This is during the millennium. He said in chapter 25 and verse 33, and at that day, the slain of the, uh, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. Look at what he says. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse. The King James word uses the rather inglorious word dung. They shall be dung or refuse on the ground. Jesus comes back to save the destroyed. The earth is desolated. 
and the saved go on to be with Jesus in heaven. Why is Satan bound? The Bible says he's bound. It also says he's bound so that he does not deceive the nations. So what does this mean that Satan is bound? I, uh, an angel came down with a great chain. The Bible speaks about this. No, no, really, the, the, the devil isn't tied up, bound hand and foot. These are descriptive words. These are symbols. Who's left to deceive? Nobody. He cannot deceive anybody. He is, he is kept here on the earth. And the, the, the Lord, well, you would say this about the devil. Well, he's all tied up right now. He's bound. He, he's kept here. There's nothing for him to do. He's, he's bound. Circumstances have him bound. It's interesting. God is going to give the devil a thousand years to reflect on the misery that he has caused. No, don't think for a moment that I'm suggesting he's hoping the devil will repent. He's not going to. And the universe is going to see that even after a thousand years, the devil is still a devil. The devil simply will not repent. And so the Bible says this to speaking about uh, the saved. I saw thrones. They sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. Well, what's that all about? Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? You see, during a a thousand years, we're going to have an opportunity to have our questions answered. You might get to heaven and say, why is my neighbor not here? Jesus will say, here's the books of judgment. This is why. Where's my family member? Where's my fellow church member? Where's my whatever it might be? And it's not very easy for me to really put into words what Jesus is going to do, other than to say he's going to allow us to look into his work of judgment and agree with him that his judgments were true and right and altogether just. So the saints are in heaven and the earth is desolate during Revelation's 1,000 years. The devil was bound for how long? 1,000 years. And then he's going to be let loose. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now, when the 1,000 years have been expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Well, I'll tell you how that is. Remember, there was going to be a first resurrection. There'd also be a second resurrection. It says in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Parenthetically, it refers back to the first resurrection. So Satan is let loose because he's back in business. The lost have been saved and he has people to tempt now. The second resurrection, the resurrection to damnation has taken place. And at about this time, John records, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Can you imagine the holy city descending? It's going to be spectacular. And so we've got a thousand-year period. Jesus comes back. The dead in Christ uh, have been raised. The earth is desolate, and at the end of the thousand years, there's a second resurrection, and the holy city descends. God's plan is to be with his people forever, and this is when the holy city comes down, lands on the Mount of Olives, and God's people in the city of God, with God, come back down here to planet earth. But before final judgment The devil works one more time. I'm going to read to you from Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. 
And when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations that are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. I I need to hit the pause button and speak about Gog and Magog here. I've heard people say, I've seen them say, well, Magog, that sounds like Moscow, and Gog, that sounds like nothing, but maybe we're going to call that Iran. And, and so this means that Iran and Russia, you know what? Don't try that at home. That's not how to interpret the Bible. Remember, the book of Revelation is an Old Testament book. That is, it was built on, framed in Old Testament imagery. So when John speaks about Babylon in the book of Revelation, he's not talking about a rebuilt Babylon. John is referring to a place of wickedness and spiritual wickedness, just like old Babylon was a place of wickedness and spiritual wickedness. When he refers to Gog and Magog, you got to say, wait, what's that? And instead of guessing, you say, let's go back to the Old Testament scriptures. Let's do that. And you go to Ezekiel chapter 38 and Ezekiel chapter 39, where Gog and Magog are the enemies of God. Simply put. So over here, you've got all of the lost that have been raised from their dusty beds. And John says, I need to describe them somehow. How will I do it? I know what. I reach back to the book of Ezekiel. Everybody who reads this will say, oh, Gog and Magog, the wicked people. That's all it means. Let's not live in this fantasy land where we try to make uh, major world powers and maybe trouble spots or something fit into our version of eschatological events. Instead, we say, what does the Bible say? So here, Satan goes out to deceive the lost, the wicked, the unsaved. And God, through John, who wrote Revelation, describes them as Gog and Magog. It's pretty simple. Then verse 20, uh, sorry, then chapter 20 and verse 9 says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. This is an overthrow attempt. The lost are lost. They see the holy city. Don't ask me to be able to rationally explain this to you, but I'll give you the facts. They see the holy city. Satan has deceived everybody. And he says, let's go to the city. Look at us. Bunch of sick people. You you, you had a deformity before you died. You've got it again. We're not perfect. Let's go to that city because it's ours. We will take it and we will overthrow it. Life is there. It belongs to us. So they go up to the, on the camp of, uh, on the breadth of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What happens next? John says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. This is the lake of fire and the destruction of the wicked. It's a really interesting thing. Serious. Far more serious than most people even realize, and I'll demonstrate that to you tonight. But what's the truth about this lake of fire? Was Mary Ellen told the right thing? Oh, yes, Mary Ellen, if you don't repent, you'll burn forever. You know what? I I didn't go to this funeral, but a friend of mine went to the funeral. And the preacher, doing his job, you know, doing his job, he said, that fellow who died never came to church, never read the Bible. He drank and he ran around and did all this stuff. And he is in hell while we gather here today. And then he turned to the family of the, of the, of the dead person and he said, and y'all are going to go there with him if you don't repent. <laughs> How cool is that? 
I tell you, this idea of people burning in hell forever, it is the preacher's friend. Because, you know, there's someone sitting in the pew and you'd be like, hey, if you don't come and get saved, you're going to burn forever. Who doesn't want to get saved? You know? Was Mary Ellen told the truth? We're going to find that out tonight. And it's really, really important that we do because this subject has been very misunderstood. Keep something in mind. Most of the time when you read the word hell in the New Testament, it's not talking about a hot place. Most of the time, it's simply referring to the grave. The word often used is Hades. It means the grave. It doesn't mean any, anything hot. It doesn't mean a place of suffering. Keep that in mind. This idea of God burning people in hell forever has made more atheists than any other thing that's ever been taught. I believe it sent people running from the church. You know who it has sent running from the church? Sensible people. Because they've said, what? God is like that? Forget about it. God's going to burn my mother forever and ever and ever. No, don't have anything to do with them. Those are sensible people. I'm not saying they're sensible for not wanting to have anything to do with God. I'm saying they're sensible for not wanting to have anything to do with that God because that God is a beast. So let's unravel what has become a tangled and very twisted tale. How many people in heaven right now? Well, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said, wait to the harvest. And in the harvest, we can separate the wheat and the tares. And you gather the tares, the weeds, into bundles to be burned. And then he said in verse 39 of Matthew chapter 13, the harvest is the... Okay, so now I have a question for you. Has the world ended yet? No. So has the harvest taken place yet? No. So has the burning of the tares or the burning of the weeds taken place yet? No. Pretty simple. John chapter 5, we read these verses before. We'll read them again now with a little more knowledge. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's the second coming of Jesus. And those who have done evil, they come up at the resurrection of what? Condemnation or damnation. Has that taken place yet? No. The second resurrection has not happened. <laughs> the first resurrection has not even happened. So the resurrection to damnation takes place a thousand years after the return of Jesus. So it is very clear there's nobody in hell suffering or burning while we meet here. When Jesus comes back, it'll still be 1,000 more years before that happens. Now, I tell you this, even though it's very clear, it's very clear in the Bible. It's not what's commonly taught. My wife and I were driving across the country several years BC. Sorry, several years before children. We were traveling across the country. We needed to use the phone, but this was several years BCP, before cell phones. And so we stopped at a pay phone. You remember them? Pay phones? We stopped at a pay phone, and I noticed this little pay phone booth was festooned with pink papers. You couldn't miss them. So I took one down and started to look at it. And I said, oh, somebody has been doing their missionary work. 
somebody had written about an experience they had when Jesus took them on a tour, a guided tour of hell. I'm going to tell you about it. It was suggested to me by somebody that this was an excerpt from a book. Maybe it is. Uh, um, I don't know. The person said, Jesus took me into the belly of hell. Just as there is a, a body of Christ being the church, hell, the person said, is shaped like a body. People were down there and they were burning in brimstone pits. Uh, the person said, the eyes had melted. Skin was falling off them. They were screaming. Goodness knows how you can scream without a tongue, but they were screaming. There was a, a suffering person who clawed his way, her way, all the way up to the top of a brimstone pit and was about to get out. <laughs> no telling where they'd, get, where they'd go if they got out. And a demon as big as a grizzly bear came running up and pushed that person back down into the pit. So they went through that experience all over again. I think the most fascinating thing for me was that there were snakes and rats in hell. I would have thought that God would destroy the snakes and the rats first. That's what I would hope. But there they were in hell with the suffering people, burning and uh, being tortured, tortured by the devil, which is interesting because this scenario has the devil helping God, where God says, hey, could you do me a favor and torture some people? And the devil says, I can do that for you. I'd like you to think this through, because what they've been telling us for years and years and years and years isn't true. And it misrepresents God in the worst way possible. The worst way possible. The Bible says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, listen, the heavens and the earth, which now are, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The heavens and the earth are reserved for fire. Revelation 20 and verse 9. They went up on the, read that, they went up on the breadth of the earth. And they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and did what? Devoured them. Where were they? On the earth. They weren't in the middle of the earth. They were on the earth. Why is the earth going to be burned up and the heavens? By the way, the heavens, not heaven where God lives. The Bible calls where the birds fly, the heavens, and it calls where the stars are, where the moon is, the heavens. So God's going to clean all that up. Going to get rid of all the pollution, all the dirt, all the nastiness, all the, all the plastic in the ocean. Every last trace of sin God's going to get rid of. Did God ever cleanse the earth once before? Yeah, what did he use? Water, I mean, it got the earth good and clean, but it didn't last long. And God's going to cleanse the earth again. This earth is sinful. You know what hell is for? Hell is to get rid of sin. Of course, there are going to be some people who've attached themselves to sin, and that's unfortunate. So hellfire will take place on the earth. God's going to get rid of sin. It's especially good news. But the question is this now, will God burn people forever? If the answer is yes, then that makes God worse than Hitler and worse than Stalin, who killed many more people than did Hitler. At least, I mean no offense, but I'm going to say this, 
at least these tyrants eventually put their victims out of their misery. You would worship a God who would have a victim in misery forever. Do you know how long forever is? It's like really long. The earth has been around for 6,000 years. That seems like a long time to us. Eternity is only just beginning after 6,000 years. No, will God, will God be worse than Joseph Stalin? Will God be worse than Adolf Hitler? You know, it's not even possible that hellfire could burn forever. Not even physically possible. I'll tell you why. Because the Bible says that hellfire is going to take place here on the earth. And if the earth is going to burn up, how can the earth be recreated if it burns forever? Another thing is this. We have discovered in these Bible presentations that human beings do not possess immortality. We are mortal. Immortality, eternal life is given to us, conferred upon us by God. It's not inherent in ourselves. The thing is this. If somebody is in hell forever, that person has eternal life. Now, granted, it's a pretty horrible eternal life, but it would be eternal life in direct contradiction to 1 John 5 and verse 12, which says, he or she that hath the Son hath life. And he or she who does not have the Son of God does not have life. People in hell don't have the Son. Therefore, they cannot have life, not even life that sees them being burned forever. Horrible life. But if you don't have Jesus... You don't have life. If you do have Jesus, you have eternal life. It was Ezekiel who wrote, the soul who sins shall do what? Doesn't say burn in hell forever. The wages of sin is what? Death. Hell is referred to as the second death. Not the first eternal life. The second death. People die there. In Psalm 37 and verse 10, the psalmist wrote that in hell, uh, the wicked, we didn't say in hell, I need to be accurate. He says the wicked will consume away into smoke. Psalm 68 verse 2, it says the wicked will perish, which is what it says in Revelation chapter 20. And I want to show you what happens to the devil himself. This is Ezekiel again. Here's what happens to the devil. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you. And I turned you to what? Ashes. Ashes upon the what? The earth. Even the devil isn't going to burn forever. He's going to burn, but he is going to burn up and be reduced to ashes. This is consistent with what the prophet Malachi wrote. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all who do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that it will leave them neither root nor branch. You shall trample the wicked and they shall be what? Ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. God is not going to give immortality to people who do not obey him. He's just not going to do that. Revelation 21 verse 4 says that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be, come on, no more death, neither what? Sorrow nor what? Crying, neither shall there be any what? Pain. Let me ask you a question. If hell burns forever, God is a liar because there will definitely be pain. I don't know whether there'll be lacrimation, but one would think if it were possible, there would be tears. The Bible says no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. A hell that burns forever. There is all of that for all eternity. Nahum 1 verse 9 and earlier I said verse 7. I correct that now. I'm sorry. 
Nahum 1 verse 9 says, affliction will not rise up again the second time. Oh, come on, friend. This is some of the best news you have ever heard in your entire existence. One day, sin is going to be gone, gone, gone. God is going to get rid of it. It is not his plan to reserve a corner of the universe like a, like a compost heap or a cesspool. And over here in some corner of the universe, there are people writhing in anguish and agony and pain and misery. Can you imagine that? Traveling through the universe a million years from now. And you say, what's that I hear? Oh, have you forgotten? That's hell. It's burning over there. Oh, oh, my grandmother's in there. Oh, my husband. Oh, and two of our kids. I think I can hear them screaming. Really? Really? Come on, ladies and gentlemen. We can't put that on God. If it were true, we'd embrace it. If it were true, we'd say, yeah, them poor suckers are going to burn forever. We would, we would tell the story. But you read the Bible. It says ashes. It says no more pain. It says only the people who have Jesus have everlasting life. It says the wages of sin is death and that hellfire will be the second death, not any kind of eternal life. And think about this. Think about this. God sent fire down from heaven before, several times in the Old Testament. And when the fire came down from God out of heaven, what did it do? Well, you remember, Elijah set up an altar made of stones and he put wood and a sacrifice and water and the fire came down from God out of heaven, landed on that and burned it up, consumed it. The fire that God sends from heaven is a fire that consumes, not a fire that merely antagonizes. It consumes. I want to tell you something. Hell is hotter than you think. Because what I was told when I was a kid is that hell was just hot enough to hurt. It was hot enough to burn you, but not do away with you. The truth is that hellfire is hotter than anybody's even thought. There will be nothing left. Nothing left of sinners. There'll be nothing left of the monuments we built to ourselves. There'll be nothing left of man's creation on this earth. We've spent 6,000 years destroying what God has made. And God's going to burn it up, clean it up so that the earth will be more beautiful than you can even imagine. Better, I reckon, than the Garden of Eden. Now, this is a really interesting thought. Because I've had people say to me, well, if if people are just going to die in hell, how bad can it be? Uh, That's an unfortunate question because it demonstrates that the question asker is missing the point. It's not the absence or the presence of pain that validates the effectiveness or the importance or the severity of hellfire. You know what hell means? What hell means is that there will be people who are blotted out of existence. Gone. Never coming back. That's how serious this is. Gone. Never coming back. And the worst part about hell isn't the fire. It isn't the heat. It's the eternal separation from God. Imagine Jesus coming back and you say, they were right. What a fool. I went to church and I heard the pastor make an appeal and I thought, oh, wait, I should go. No, I won't. I should go. No, I won't. I should go, it's over now. Maybe next time. Next time never came. And the heavens depart as a scroll, and here's Jesus, and that man, that woman is saying to himself, herself, Oh, 
And then they realize that they are going to be separated from their family forever. Separated from their loved ones, their friends, forever. Separated from life, from this earth, and from God forever. That, my friend, is hell. Knowing that it is over and you're done. Because that's what hell really is about. Gone forever. God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies. Therefore, turn and live. Can you imagine, can't you, God who created us is going to end up blotting many of us out. Oof, that would impact him, wouldn't it? Many of my children cannot be with me forever. God says, that's got to be hard. But it doesn't have to be that way because Jesus came into this world so that sin does not own you. Sin shall not have dominion over you, the Bible says. You get to choose life. You can say, I'm going to live forever with Jesus. I want to honor God. After all, somebody died on the cross for me. Somebody bore my burden. I can live forever. And that might sound like a selfish thing, but I don't mean it in a selfish way. I've got so much to look forward to. You know, one of the great tragedies when a child dies, we say she had a whole life ahead of her. He had so much to give and experience a life cut short. Well, if you die at 80, 85, 70, 105, whatever, and that's it, that's what heaven says about you. A life cut short, the best was yet to come. The glorious days were ahead. And right when they should have been saying, hey, let's go, let's really live now. We're off to glory. It's then that eyes close forever and ever and ever, and it's over. But somebody's saying, no, hold, hold on a minute. Because doesn't the Bible say forever and ever? Well, be careful with that. Because in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, it says, The beast and the prophet shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. But verse 9 says that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now, when something's devoured, it means it's all gone. So they're all gone, but something happens forever and ever. Well, there's no problem with the Bible. It must be our understanding that needs to be tweaked a little bit. And so I'll share something with you that maybe you already know, and that is this, that in the Bible, the term or the phrase forever or forever and ever is frequently used in conjunction with an event that has come and gone. I'll explain that again so you can really get that. The Bible says forever and ever about a bunch of stuff that's finished and isn't going on forever and ever. How can that be? Well, the Bible speaks about Hannah. She prayed to God for a son. God blessed her with a son. His name was what? Samuel. And she said, I'm going to take him to the temple so that he can remain there how long? Well, that would mean he should still be there at the temple now because that's what she said. But what she really meant is explained just a few verses later where she says, I have lent him to the Lord for as long as he lives. I've lent him to the Lord. You see the difference? It meant forever in the, in, in the context of for as long as the time lasts. 
That's what she meant by that. Jonah said, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me. How long? But we know that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I reckon if you were in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights, you'd say it felt like forever, seemed like forever. But forever was, it was going to happen over a determined period of time and there's nothing anybody could do to amend or ameliorate against that or ameliorate that. Nothing anybody could do. Forever means for as long as the time lasts. That's what hell uh, that's what, that's why the Bible refers to hell once or twice as being forever. And I'll tell you another reason, because the effects of hell are going to be eternal. They will last forever. Now, let me show you one here. This is, this is, the word is Gehenna. So this is a hell that means a hot place. So what's Jesus getting at where he says, if your hand offends you, uh, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now that's hell, the hot place. I was in Jerusalem just recently and my archaeologist friend who was the tour guide explained that just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem, was the Valley of Hinnom, and they would burn their trash, their garbage, their rubbish there. The fire was essentially always going, and it burned things up. So there was nothing left. And what the fire didn't get, if it was organic matter, the maggots would get, the worms would get. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, hell, total consumption, complete annihilation. He's not talking about a hell that goes on and on and on forever and ever and ever. The fire that cannot be quenched? Of course it's fire that cannot be quenched. You couldn't put it out and neither could I. This is eternal fire, God's fire, fire kindled from heaven. We cannot quench it. It won't go out until it has done its job. And then when everything is reduced to ashes, the fire goes out. I want to show you just how plain the Bible is on the subject. Now you might say, what about, what about, I understand that. But let me show you, well, let's deal in the plain and the simple. In Jude verse 7, the Bible writer says that Sodom and Gomorrah, listen, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So if you want to know what hellfire is like, you look at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what the Bible says plainly. Sodom and Gomorrah are an illustration of what hellfire is like. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? The Bible says that God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into what? Making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And so it's clear. Sodom and Gomorrah, hell, same kind of thing. The issue is sin will be gone. And the people who attach themselves to sin will be gone as well. That's not a threat. It's a manifestation of the love of God. One day God's going to get rid of every blight, every stain, every foul spot, every blemish. It's going to be gone so that you can live for eternity unmolested by sin, not troubled by sin, not plagued by sin, not hassled by sin. 
So you can live in the perfect earth that God created in the beginning. Sin messed that up, but sin isn't going to last forever. It'll be gone. God will burn it up. Even the devil will be burned up. Now, for me, this just makes sense. And it's some of the best news I've ever heard in my life. But better yet, it's biblical. And we discover tonight an expression of the love of God for you and me. You'll get rid of sin. He's not interested in keeping people burning and writhing. Come on. And someone's going to say to me, well, how long will this take? I don't know. Jesus talked in Matthew, Luke chapter 12, I believe it is, about some who will be beaten with few stripes and some with many. I don't know. Maybe that means that some people will burn this long and some people will burn that long. I don't know. Is it five minutes? Is it a year? I don't know. Why are we worrying about that? Because we're not going to be part of it. You know why? Because we have faith in Jesus. And she, he that has the son, has life. We have life to look forward to. Life. Life. Now, I could stop now, but I can't. I could stop, but someone's going to say, what about the rich man and Lazarus? It's a good question. And so I prepared an answer for you. Have a look in your Bible. I'm not going to put the verses on the screen. If you have a Bible, follow along. If you have a device, follow along. If you have neither, listen along. Luke chapter 16. And when you get to Luke chapter 16, you're going to look in verse, uh, starting in verse 22. Luke chapter 16. And we shall start in verse 22. This is what the Bible says. Uh, no, no, no. We're not going to start there. We're going to start in verse 19. I'm so sorry. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried and in hell... He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I want you to understand something. The word hell is not Gehenna. It's not hot. It's Hades. It's the grave. So factor that into your thinking. Now, first thing I want to point out to you is that back then it was believed by the legalistic pharisaical Jews that if you had plenty of money, you were blessed by God, you were bound to go to heaven. And if you were a beggar, you were cursed by God, there was no eternal life for you. What did Jesus just do? He flipped that. And he helped the man to see that beggars could be saved and rich people could be lost. Uh, your status in life is not necessarily a reflection of your standing with God. Important to know that. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Now I want you to see how much symbolism and descriptive language there is here. A fellow is being tormented and he says, you know what I need? I need the dampened end of someone's index finger. That's going to make me feel good. The brother would have been crying out for Niagara Falls is what he would have been asking for. And the saved person flew away to Abraham's bosom. Is that where we believe the redeemed go? 
No, Jesus was playing on something here because these guys said, we are father, we are children of Abraham. Said to Jesus, we are the children of Abraham. And so we're all of that. And Jesus said, well, if you were children of Abraham, you'd have done his works. They believed in salvation by ancestry. In New Zealand, in New Zealand Māori, we talk about a person being able to do their whakapapa. That's trace their ancestry back to their, you know, their tribal ancestry back, 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 back. Well, these guys kind of did the same thing. And they were able to trace their, their whakapapa, their ancestry, back to Abraham. And they were, ah, look at that. We're the children of Abraham. So we're definitely saved. And Jesus is showing this guy, oh, hold on. The beggar is a child of Abraham. And you, child of Abraham, your birthright hasn't secured you salvation. Abraham said, son, remember in your lifetime you got good things, Lazarus, evil, but now he's comforted and you aren't. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that anyone who wants to come from there to here can't and we can't go from here to you. So now, so now you're asking me to believe that literally somebody in hell can talk to somebody in heaven. This is a parable. It's not a commentary on the reality of the afterlife. It's a parable. He said, I ask you, therefore, Father, send him to my dad's house. I've got five brothers. I want him to testify to them so that they don't come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, oh, no, if one went from the dead, they would repent. And he said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if one went from the dead. And you know what's fascinating about this? Someone did go back from the dead. And his name was Lazarus. Really interesting. Jesus is making a ton of points here. And one of them is not that this is what the afterlife is like. He's saying rich, poor, it's all about faith in God. Jew, Gentile, it's not about Abraham being in your family tree. It's about your faith in Christ, the Savior. And then he said, Moses and the prophets. In other words, the word of God. What are you doing with that? Don't give Jesus all my tradition is. Don't give Jesus all my seminary teaching this. Don't give Jesus all my, my father and my church pastor that. You've got to be able to come to Jesus and say, here's what you said. And I applied it in my life. You invited me to come to you and I did. You asked me to surrender my life and I did. I believed in you as Lord and Savior. I did. You forgave my sin. You gave me hope. You forgave me of things that people, if they knew about, would never have forgiven me for. Jesus, I owe you everything because you gave me everything. I love you because you first loved me. We have Moses and the prophets. The Bible speaks to us about a merciful God, a loving God, a God who is one day going to get rid of sin and invite you to be a, an inhabitant, not of a world that's been destroyed, not of a world that was turned to ashes when fire and brimstone rained down from heaven. No, not some hot place where many people believe this rich man is. No, no, this rich man died and went to sleep and death. Instead, Jesus says, would you believe this? He who has the son has life. He or she who does not have the son of God does not have life. If Jesus is in your heart, if Jesus owns your life, you get to look beyond this world and into the world to come. 
If I asked you a question, where are you going? You'd say, well, 10 minutes from now, I'm going home. But my question for you is not where you're going. My question is, where are you going? What's ahead for you? What does eternity look like for you? You can have faith in Jesus tonight and know that your eternity stretches on for eternity. Or you can choose tonight to shrug and say, ah, maybe another day. And look forward to what? Eternal blackness, eternal darkness, eternal death. Oh, no, what does God have to do to convince us that he is good and that God is love? What does he have to do? What does he have to do to penetrate the hard shell that we've got around our heart and crack crack that thing and shine light into our heart to warm us up and lead us in the pathway of truth and righteousness? What does God have to do? Jesus tonight offers you everlasting life. It's interesting, isn't it? Hellfire burns out. Hellfire reduces sinners to ashes. Hellfire doesn't burn eternally. Hellfire burns up the earth and everything that's in it, cleanses our earth's atmosphere, gets rid of those footprints on the moon, takes care of all of those voyages, space things that go out past Jupiter and wherever they're gone. Gone. But that's the academic part. It's good to know. But the story of salvation didn't save anybody. It's the experience of salvation who saved anyone who might be saved. I went home to New Zealand in 1995. And on the front page of the New Zealand Herald, I think it was the front page, was this terrible story. It's terrible, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. 18-year-old young woman was driving home from her boyfriend's house on the Southern Motorway in Auckland. She was out way too late. It was about 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And my guess is she fell asleep. The story did not say. She wasn't drunk. She wasn't stoned. But it was late, and my guess is she fell asleep. She, she wrecked her car. She crashed her car. No big deal except it was a big deal. There were two things complicating her experience. One was that she was trapped in the car by her feet and she couldn't extricate herself. And the second problem was the car was on fire. So a meat truck, a meat delivery truck driver and an off-duty policeman both stopped. And they saw what was going on. Girl is in the car. She's crying out for help. She just had a couple of sort of bumps on her face. The man said she didn't look like she was badly hurt or even hurt at all. Just a couple of scratches. And she said, please, you've got to save me. Do what you can. And so one man went through the back door of the car. The other man went through the front door of the car and just did everything they possibly could. The policeman said, I'll take the front and I'm going to try and get her out of there. And he did everything he could, everything he could. But the flames became too intense. And he ended up having part of the the meat of his hand burned all the way down to the bone, which I guess isn't far, but that's still a, a, a pretty serious sort of injury. The truck driver gave the interview later and he said, after a while, we just had to walk away. He said, she grabbed my arm. She said, don't leave me here. I'm going to die. He said, but we had to. The flames and the heat drove us back. He said, we were shocked and we felt like crying, which I think is reasonable. 
She didn't make it home that night because of a car accident. And she was stuck. Stuck by her feet. If she could have got out of that car, she would have. If they could have freed her, they would have. But instead, a young life was snuffed out. Because she was stuck in that car and couldn't get free. Some men stopped. Passers-by, they stopped to help. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me that 6,000 years ago, our planet was involved in a wreck. Sin entered the world. And our original grandparents, Adam and Eve, were trapped. But Jesus happened by. And he spoke to the serpent and he said, Now you're going to bruise my heel, but I'm going to bruise your head. That's the lake of fire. And the gift of repentance was given to the human family. Would have been crazy for that 18-year-old young woman to stay in the car if she could have got out. We find ourselves tonight in a burning car. But Jesus has stopped. And Jesus, through his death on the cross and his resurrection from Joseph's new tomb, his ascension into heaven, his mediation, his intercession at the right hand of his father and ours, by his soon coming to this earth, Jesus is going to ransom and redeem us and take us to be with him where he is and will be forever. Who would stay stuck when you can go free? But here's what I believe. In a group of people this size, there are always those who are stuck. But thank God there are always those who want to go free. Free through the goodness of Jesus, who tonight knocks at the door of your heart. Tonight I want to issue an invitation to you. If you're stuck someplace and you would like to go free, I want to encourage you to go free. If there's something holding you back, I'd like you to shake it off through Jesus tonight. If you've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do so tonight. If you've been far from God and you want to come back, do so tonight. If you want to make things right with God, I don't mean this in a general sense. If you're fine with God, I want you to stay where you are and pray. But if you're not, bring your heart to Jesus and tell Jesus you're coming home to Him. How is it with your heart tonight? 